with that, can we all give a warm welcome to Nate Sapp. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. I am so excited to be here this weekend. Been praying for this for a while. And uh, yeah, really excited. This is a beautiful place, isn't it? Man, who's, uh, who's this, this is their first time out here? This is my first time out here. Okay, a lot of us, yeah. Man, the drive was, was gorgeous. I had no idea L.A. was that close to natural beauty. It's just amazing. Right there. It felt like Colorado. That's where we go. We have to drive like eight hours to get to anything like this, so um, that's awesome. So yeah, like Sam said, um, I work with college students in Kansas, and I love it. I feel like um, college students are just a gold mine of opportunity and um, love investing in them. I feel like it's, it's such a, a critical moment in everyone's life where you kind of decide the trajectory of where you're going. Um, oftentimes you decide your career in college, you decide who you're gonna become. Um, sometimes God provides a spouse in college, like he did for me. And really I am who I am because of those years I spent um, involved in Christian Challenge at Kansas State. And so when they offered me a job, I was like, okay. I studied um, secondary ed mathematics. Um, and so I was student teaching and really enjoying it. And at the same time, had the opportunity uh, to do ministry. And I said, okay, I'll try it. I felt like God was leading me there. And it's been a, a fun ride ever since. So I want to tell you a little bit more about my family. So I do have a picture. It's pretty much the same picture um, in my slide. So um, my wife, Erica, is from a small town. She grew up. Um, on a farm with cattle and hogs and crops. And um, so I've, I've kind of married into small town America because I did not grow up in a small town. I grew up in Zambia. When I was one year old, my parents took me to um, what we call the bush in Zambia. So in a rural um, little, not a village, but I don't know, not very many people there, Chipata, Zambia. Then when I was five, we moved to Lusaka, Zambia. When I was nine, we moved to Nairobi, Kenya where I spent the rest of high school, um, graduated from high school there. So then I came to Kansas because my parents are from Kansas. So it was a culture shock to say the least. Um, and I have now become very Kansan and I love Kansas with all my heart. So yeah, I have four kids. Um, here's some pictures of them. I don't know if you can see it, but the top left is my son. He, his name's Ezra, he's nine and he loves everything outdoors. Um, we have chickens, so that's pretty fun. We have backyard chickens. We got five of them. It's a new thing for us. I never knew chickens could be so fun. They're just a great pet. They're amazing. And then they give you eggs, just so great. So um, our chickens are very interacted with. My kids, since we homeschool, they're often outside grabbing the chickens. My third daughter, Eliza, she's 11. She will kiss the chickens repeatedly. We're like, Eliza, this is dangerous. <laughs> Don't do this. And she's been pecked quite a few times. She's like, I love them. They're my babies. <laughs> so the chickens are a new thing. It's been a great thing for us. I want to tell you a story about Ezra. Um, he's my boy, and he's the youngest, so he's got four mothers, right? And um, man, I love this guy. He's a lot of fun. He is an animal. He loves outside. He lives outside. And so we have a creek um, near our neighborhood, and he'll be down there in the creek with his buddies. And he has discovered 
um, that there's so much life in the creek. He takes a, a fishing pole down, a net down. He takes shovels down. They're building stuff. They're down there all the time. And sometimes we don't know where Ezra is. And then he comes home and he's just caked in mud and he's so happy. And he's learned recently, he's found that he can catch crawfish in the creek. And so he's brought up like tons of crawfish and we've cooked it and eaten it. And then um, the newest one was just last week. So I got to tell you this story. Um, So I grew up in Africa. We actually took our whole family to Kenya over Christmas, so just about a year ago. And it's a great experience uh, to show them where I grew up. For my parents, my parents took us all over, and my parents kind of told them all the stories. We got to meet some people. Now, in Kenya, they eat this thing called kapenta. Let me show you a picture. I've got a picture. This is kapenta, right? So it's minnows, and they dry them, and then they cook them. They're really crispy, right? So I grew up eating kapenta. We told Ezra about kapenta. He had some kapenta in Nairobi. So now he's in the creek, and he's like, Dad, there's tons of minnows in the creek. And I see what's going on in his mind. And and I don't want to discourage my son, right? He's learning so many things. So I'm like, okay, we'll figure it out. I never have cooked or dried kapenta. Obviously, the minnows in an American creek are different than whatever I ate as a kid. So... He brings up, he, he gets a bucket full of minnows. He's just able to catch them. And then he's at his friend's house, and he, this is just last week. And I'm kind of nervous. I don't know how to cook this stuff. So anyway, he's, he's there. He's got a bucket full of minnows, and he leaves it in the sun. Right. So all the minnows are just floating now. They're dead minnows. And he's like, I come and pick him up at his friend's house, and he's holding the bucket, and he's like, Can we still eat them? So, I should have said no. I'm still here. And I'm like, okay, let's try this. So, his mother wasn't home, right? So, I'm trying to raise a man, right? Let's eat some dead fish, right? Okay, so we get the minnows home, and we take them, we wash them, clean them, and then... I just couldn't do the, the whole head thing, so I cut the heads off. And then we, we, like, breaded them and fried them in lard, and they were crispy, and they were disgusting. So, I don't know. It wasn't capenta, but, hey, that's a story. Ezra loved them. He ate, like, ten of them. And he just kept eating them. He goes, pretty good, Dad. So, that's how we homeschool, right there. Okay, so that's a little bit about me. Um, I just wanted to let you into my life a little. I'll tell you my testimony tonight as well, just so you can feel like you can know who I am and where I'm coming from. But what are we doing in the main sessions here at this conference? We are going to spend our weekend in the the letter of Colossians. And specifically, we're just going to soak in 10 verses of Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to talk about the preeminence of Christ. Not a word that I use every day, but it's in this part of Colossians, and it is beautiful. It's just been rich for me to meditate on. There are a few moments in Scripture where Jesus kind of reveals who he is, or where the identity of Christ is just made super clear, where the curtain's pulled back, um, and we see him for who he really is. I think of some of the moments in the gospel narratives. You think about 
where Jesus um, walks on water or where Jesus says a word to the storm and it just stops in an instant. Not only the storm, but the waves just stop. I mean, what an eerie story to be in the middle of a storm that could kill you and then all of a sudden it's calm and peaceful. Moments where Jesus speaks a word to a demon-possessed person and that person is changed in an instant. They're freed from demonic oppression. Or where Jesus heals someone. Or he says to a little girl, my daughter, get up. And she's raised from the dead. Crazy moments in the Gospels. I think even of John chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. And he raises him from the dead. And then there's moments where Jesus expressly says things about his identity. Like in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That moment, if you read through the narrative, the Jews wanted to stone him in that moment because he was claiming to be God. Or then there's places where other people attest to Jesus' identity, like John chapter 1, the prelude of John, where the Apostle John talks about Jesus and he says, in the beginning was the Word. And he's talking about Christ. And he's using Genesis 1.1 to say Jesus is preexistent to everything. And he talks about Christ being um, there at creation. Or Hebrews 1, which talks about Jesus being the exact representation of God. Or Revelation, where we see all the nations um, in heaven around the throne of Christ, the Lamb, the slain Lamb. Jesus is God. And that's what we're going to soak in. We're going to look at one of these moments in Scripture that just pulls back the curtain of who is Christ. What is his identity? What is his nature? What is he like? And the word that, that is at the center of this is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Colossians 1.15 through 20 is where we're going to be. It's at the very beginning of this letter. And the language changes drastically in, in uh, these verses, 15 through 20. So scholars have talked about this. It's, it's really different. And what they've decided is they think Paul is either writing or quoting a hymn from the early church. A hymn that was like um, a baseline of their theology of who Christ is. And it's really beautiful. And so this weekend, we're going to call this the Christ hymn. That's what some scholars call it. Why don't you open your Bibles to Colossians 1, and we're just going to read it together. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
I just want to take a moment after reading that and pray for our time together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we want our hearts to be good soil. Lord, I pray just that as we look into your word this weekend, uh, that we would be attentive to what you would say to us, to your, your spirit drawing our hearts to you. I pray, Lord, that you would take rightful place, that we would see you as Lord of all. And if there's any message um, around our lives or in our hearts that diminishes you, Jesus, I pray that those would be taken away, that truth would shine on those messages and you would just reveal yourself to us. We open our hearts to you. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's no consensus on this hymn. Some scholars think that Paul uh, wrote the whole hymn for this letter. And they think that because these verses we read, it like hits the Colossian context perfectly. Other uh, scholars think that maybe Paul took a hymn that existed and then edited it a little bit. He like quoted it and they would know it, but then he added things into it that they were dealing with. Um, especially there, the, the language of, of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, which we'll talk about more tomorrow morning. And so they think, maybe Paul edited it. So we don't really know. Maybe he wrote it. Maybe it was like this and just like this, and he quoted it exactly as it was, and it just fit exactly what they were dealing with. We don't know, but it's this beautiful moment, and all of the Colossian letter hinges around this hymn. He starts his content with this hymn, before it, he's just been telling them what he's praying for them and how he's thankful for them. And when he starts, he just, boom, right here in verse 15. And so from this and from other parts of Colossians, we can learn the Colossian context. And that's part of what I want to do tonight is just kind of introduce where we're going and uh, clue you into what was happening in Colossae, this ancient town in modern-day Turkey. So let's read together. Colossians 2.8 kind of helps us see some of the context and how the hymn really addresses that. So it's on the screen there. Colossians 2.8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here and other places in the letter, we see this, that the Colossian church was in danger. There was a message that was assaulting them. And this message was probably infiltrating through people claiming to have knowledge about spiritual truth. And, and the message they were bringing diminished Christ. You can see it there. It was based on philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition. And it was according to the elemental spirits of the world. And that's some of the same language we have in the hymn. The hymn is addressing this false message that diminished Christ. We see elements of um, like Jewish tradition. I think that's their human tradition. Later in the letter, you see that this message included like if you do the right things, um, then you'll have spiritual experiences and then the elemental spirits there, I think there, there was some fear of evil demonic power. And they were afraid. And this message was telling them that you can have power over that um, through this way that diminished Jesus. 
And so the best guess is that the Colossians were falling prey to syncretism, which is the picking and choosing, the adding and the blending of religions with Christianity. And so Paul is deeply concerned. He didn't start this church, but, but his friend did. And when Epaphras came to him in prison and told him what was going on with the church in Epaphras' hometown, Colossae, Paul sat down in prison with Timothy and he wrote this letter, and the hymn is at the center of it. And now, over 2,000 years later, or about 2,000 years later, we're sitting here tonight reading it. And if you think about it, it's just amazing to have these words. These have lasted um, through the ages, and they're beautiful words. And so the center of the hymn, which is the center of this letter, is in verse 18, where it says, Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's talk about this word preeminence. Some synonyms of the word are dominance, incomparability, ascendancy, primacy, authority, and excellence. Other translations of the Bible use the word supreme or supremacy, and I really like how the CSB translates this word in the Greek. It says, so that Christ might come to have first place in everything. And so this is about Christ in his rightful place, in the place that he deserves. In our common language today, we talk of preeminence when we talk about people that are excellent at something. People that have great skill, better than anyone else. Or maybe someone that has more knowledge or more experience. Preeminence also has authority wrapped up in it. So you can be preeminent at how good you are at something, like mathematics or basketball or juggling. Who knows? Authority comes from um, being the best at it. And everyone around you knows that you're the best at it. So an example of this um, from my time at Kansas State, I was in the math department. And so I was in um, Cardwell Hall on Kansas State's campus. And the math professors there, there was one that was preeminent. His name's Andy Bennett, Dr. Bennett. And the man is a genius. Um, He's a, a graduate from Yale. He's just an amazing mathematician. And not only is he great at research and all of this, he's a great teacher. And so he actually taught um, us how to teach mathematics. He was phenomenal. He could communicate mathematics so fluently and so well that um, everybody revered Dr. Bennett. He wrote the book that we used for differential equations. And just being in Cardwell Hall, when Andy Bennett walked by, it was kind of like, that was Andy Bennett, right? I'm sure you have a professor like that in your department. It's where you know, like, this is the preeminent scholar at your school in this field. And so we just all know. It was actually um, kind of comical because when I student taught, so, you know, undergraduate in education is, I mean, Andy Bennett's like way up there, and I'm just like, wow. But then I student taught, and so I'm teaching at the ninth grade center in our town, and I have Andy Bennett's kid in geometry. <laughs> And so I'm like, okay, all right, okay. Now, Andy Bennett's kid was also a genius, so he's just no big deal, right? But I'm doing, like, parent-teacher conferences, and Andy Bennett's sitting across the table, and I'm like, your son's great, you're doing great. (laughs) Dr. Bennett was preeminent, and everybody knew, right? Everybody knew. 
Let me illustrate it a different way. One thing about me is I love sports. I love competition. I love playing sports. I love watching sports. Probably my favorite sport is football to watch and the NFL. My favorite team is the Kansas City Chiefs. So good. I love the Chiefs. Okay, okay. Listen, listen. This story is going to get better because I'm going to be humbled. But let me brag a little bit, okay? So Patrick Mahomes is insane. Guy's insane. And when he started starting games in the NFL, no one knew what to do with him. His first season as a starter, he won the MVP. His second season as a starter, we won the Super Bowl. He won Super Bowl MVP. And I mean, the, the trajectory of his career, it, like it was insane. Talk around Kansas City was like, he will never lose again, basically what we thought. And so we were very confident. So he makes it, so Super Bowl 54, he beat the 49ers. It was crazy. The plays that he made were insane. They will never die in Kansas City lore. And then Super Bowl 55, he's in it again, and we, I was so confident. I was going to that game thinking, man, this is no big deal. Tom Brady, Schmom Brady, like whatever. <laughs> and even though we had all these injuries, I was like, no big deal. But then this, this play was kind of the defining play of that Super Bowl. Any NFL fan will know, he got like destroyed that game because we didn't have an O-line and they were after him. And I mean, this play's amazing. I think when he threw this, it actually hit one of our players in the face mask, in the end zone, but he didn't catch it. And so no touchdowns were made. Mahomes played awesome, but um, you need a team to win football. And so here's what happened. The next picture is something I don't enjoy. Like, why does Brady need another? And then after he got his seventh ring, this is what he posted. And so the talk leading up to the Super Bowl 55 was that Mahomes can overtake Brady. Is that no, there's no stopping this guy. It's his third season as a starter, and he's going to win two championships. Man, he's going to totally, and he's going to beat Brady to do it. We had all the confidence. We thought Mahomes is the thing. And then Brady reminded us he's the GOAT. And at this point, there is no argument. Brady is preeminent. He has seven rings. He's showing us his rings. And Mahomes has one. And I don't know. I mean, Mahomes could win eight, but I think it's extremely unlikely. And so now my confidence is like way down here. And I'm like, whatever. If we win, we win. Brady's the GOAT. And so I kind of care a little bit less about the Chiefs. It's kind of sad. It's kind of sad, but I love them. Okay, so there you go. I was humbled. So this is the point, that, that preeminence, you cannot argue. There's no argument. I can't say that Mahomes is better than Brady because we saw how it played out on the field, and there's that picture of him with seven rings. There's no arguing. And this is Paul's point, his exact point about Christ in this hymn. He's saying Jesus is unequivocally, supremely over and in control of all things. And no one, no thing is on the same level as Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus has all authority. He is Lord over all. And that, that idea of authority, that's actually something as a culture in America we're not in love with. Our authority is something we complain about. We put term limits on. We try to have checks and balances. 
We suspect our authority of everything. Jesus is authority that cannot be questioned. He is perfect in his authority. There's no term limits with Jesus. There's no checks and balances on Jesus. I suppose you could complain about Jesus' authority in your life, but it's not going to do you any good in the end. Jesus is supremely over all, and he's nothing like our political system. The kingdom of Jesus is perfect, and I'm longing for it. I'm longing for it. So, this is really my goal for the weekend. This is kind of a, just an hors d'oeuvre to the hymn. We're going to walk through it one verse at a time. We're going to let it kind of soak into our lives and challenge us and call us to worship Christ. And my goal for the weekend is as we gaze at Jesus and we look at his nature revealed to us clearly through this hymn, that we would see him for who he truly is and he would take rightful place in our heart. Because that's something that's really beautiful about um, the creation is God made us in his image and he gave us the dignity to choose if we would bow our knee to Christ in this life. We know from Philippians that every knee will bow before Christ in the end, but now that's not the case. And he gives us the choice. Will we bow our knee to him today? And so that's my goal, that we would gather around Christ, see him for who he truly is, and worship him in his preeminence. Now, this letter of Colossians and this hymn specifically, I think it's really relevant for us today. It's relevant for students. I think there are messages in our culture and uh, around our lives that would diminish Christ. And so let me tell you just some of the the ways I think this hymn is relevant. We're going to look at these in detail in each message. So one of them, I think, is this this, uh, cultural... Um, it's really a cultural religion today of tolerance and acceptance. Th- these ideas that all roads lead to God, um, find your own truth. If it's good for you, then it's good for you. And I think this is really tempting for college students today because it diminishes um, conflict. There's a lot of conflict in our culture today. And so if you take this path of like kind of extreme tolerance of ideas where you say nothing's true or nothing's wrong, um, it, it, dimin- it takes away all the conflict. You can just say, well, I don't believe that, but I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong. And I would just say this is a really dangerous thing that's happening in our culture because it totally diminishes Christ. Jesus didn't let us have this option. He said about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. And so this message, I think it's really prevalent among young people of tolerance. Another message, especially in the academic realm, is this message of science and reason or philosophy. And what this says is that you are committing intellectual suicide if you have faith. That something is not true unless it can be observed and proven that actually science disproves the existence of God and you are a fool if you believe. You have to be backwards to believe in God today. And so this message is really attacking young Christians. And really what I think this is is human pride speaking. Because like, if you think about science, and we'll, we'll dive into this one tomorrow morning, 
What science is is just observation of what's there, right? Science really, we can't even recreate it. I mean, hardly at all. And so what are we observing? And how can we say that we might put ourselves in the place of God when we observe what's there? So we'll talk more about that one tomorrow. Um, Another message I think that's really relevant that's attacking and diminishing Christ is this gospel in our culture of self. Our culture just puts self at the center of everything. We define our own identity through what we feel. We define what is best for us, what's best for others. We live our lives on this journey of like self-actualization and self-discovery. It's all about self. There's this really strong message of self-help, which we'll talk a lot about um, tomorrow night. And it's just really empty. The message of self, I mean, if you, if you look at it, as we buy more and more into this, like, identify yourself and define yourself, youth culture has never struggled more with depression and anxiety than it does today. And you just can't define yourself. Like, Jesus brings definition to who you are. So we'll look, we'll look at that more tomorrow night. So I want to close tonight um, just by setting up the hymn in its context. So look back at your Bibles. Um, One thing about the Greek that's really, really interesting and fascinating is that um, my Bible has like a a whole different paragraph that starts at 15 and a heading, and it says the preeminence of Christ in the ESV. But in the Greek, actually, the sentence continues, like 13 and 14 um, goes straight into 15, and the word he is supplied here. Actually, in the Greek, it's, it's who, because the sentence doesn't end. And I think they're trying to make it a little more digestible in English. Um, Paul is kind of renowned for these long, run-on sentences. And so they break it there, and they start a new idea. But it's really connected with 13 and 14. So I wanted to read 13 and 14 together and then just share my testimony from these verses so you can kind of learn about my story and how I've come to follow Christ. So let's read 13 and 14. Paul writes, he says, He, talking about God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then the Greek says, Who is, is the image of the invisible God. And so redemption is on Paul's mind. This transfer, this domain of darkness. It's really beautiful. Those verses are pretty impactful. It's a dramatic picture of the rescue that happens when someone puts their faith in Jesus. And I mean, it's, it's intense language, right? The domain of darkness and we, we need to be rescued and transferred. It's really, really beautiful language. So let me tell you my story, how this happened. I um, grew up overseas, like I mentioned, in Africa. My parents were pretty amazing people. Um, they came to faith. My dad came to faith through campus ministry at Kansas State. He was like one of the first students to be involved in the Christian Challenge at K-State and came to faith there. And his life was so impacted by Christ and the gospel that he was just like, I'm all in, 
And they took a, a, a summer trip, like a, a mission trip um, to Africa. And um, he fell in love with the people there and the cause there. And so um, he took my mom and, and me and my sister there. And I grew up around a lot of people that, that told me the gospel. And so I, I grew up around it. Um, but something happened in middle school in sixth grade. I was in America on a stateside trip, and I just had a rough experience. Sixth grade is hard no matter what. Um, but I was being, kind of being pulled out of my school and my community in Africa and then thrown into a private school in um, Wichita and just kind of didn't feel accepted. Um, I wouldn't say there was like traumatic bullying going on, but the, the boys just kind of made fun of me and ostracized me. I think they were a little bit intimidated because the teachers presented me as like, like it was a Christian school and the teachers were like, this is a real life missionary kid. You know, and I'm like, right? Little sixth grade Nate. And I mean, the boys did not want anything to do with me. And so um, there were some hard moments in that for sure and insecure moments. And what I did is I just kind of bottled up that experience um, my dad was doing seminary in Texas, and so he was like writing. He, was, he did a, a, a doctorate in African church leadership, and he wrote like a 400-page book on this. And so he was working all the time. The picture I have of my dad from that season is his back turned to me, and he's on a computer, and he's typing. And, and I'm going through this thing, and I just kind of bottled it up, and I didn't go to God. I didn't go to my parents. And I tried to find life other places. And so the boys there rejected me, but the girls were fascinated by me. And I, I really believe this message that if I can find love, then my life has purpose and it has meaning. And I just chased after that with all that I was. And so middle school was this kind of weird, I dated as many girls as I could, whatever that means in middle school. You know, it's like I'll sit next to you in the movie, right, in class and... Um, but there was like, <laughs> there was brokenness there, right? And it actually, just because I didn't walk in honesty with my parents, I started to really be a deceiver. And I started to like, missionary kids are kind of renowned. Like, I can blend in almost anywhere. Um, and so I did that. I just kind of lied, and I put the face on that people wanted to see, and I, I knew all the answers I knew all the stories, and so I could look whatever you wanted me to look in the Christian environment, but my heart was just increasingly chasing after worldly satisfaction. So my friends got into drinking and smoking, and I did too, and really, the, like, I just lied to everyone. I lied to my girlfriend. I lied to my parents. I lied to my friends, to my teachers, my coaches, and I think to the point where I didn't even know who I was. It was just, I was just living a lie. And I was not seeking God at all, like zero interest in reading the Bible. I, I would have to go to chapel, you know, but I just would like sit in the back and pretend to be there. Um, my heart was really hard and I was very cynical. I remember sitting around with my friends um, who were other missionary kids as well. My school is very diverse um, and we would just like, we would just make fun of missionaries. We would mock them. Um, we would just laugh at how stupid they were. And so that was the condition of my heart. So I come to K-State, and I, I don't have any friends. It was a, a culture shock. It's just like my life was kind of uprooted, and I have no community, which a lot of people feel when they go to college. Um, 
but there was also this like small town. Like I was on a, a floor in the dorms that was full of um, ag concentrations. These kids who were like from uh, farms learning how to do farm things. And I'm like from Nairobi, Kenya. And it was just kind of like everything I wanted to talk about and that I knew about the world and I thought was cool, they didn't understand. And everything that they knew about, I had no clue what they were saying. And we just totally missed each other. And man, it was, it was a, a rough season. But in that year, I got around Christian Challenge. I got drugged there from, um, by older students um, who were really kind and in, in my dorm reaching out to me. And I just kind of faked it again for like a year. And I ended up going on a link trip, a one-link trip, because my options were go to this town, live with my aunt, and work at Burger King over the summer, or go on a mission trip to China. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. Like, I'm really good at being overseas, and I love overseas. Let's do that. So I kind of faked it through the whole process, and I'm on this team, but I'm not really a genuine believer. I'm just kind of there because this is cooler than working at Burger King. It's a really bad reason to do missions, right? There's better reasons. So, um, but God worked in my life. So I'm on this team. There's like eight people. And these people uh, were so genuine in their faith. And so just being around them, praying with them, reading the scripture with them, uh, I started to really be drawn. And I started reading the Bible for myself. And that is a dangerous practice. Um, the Lord spoke to me and convicted me. It started to get really personal um, I remember one time in, um, on this trip, I read in the scriptures about being deceitful, and I knew that the Holy Spirit, I mean, he was just putting his thumb on my heart. It's like, this is you. I remember, like, taking my Bible, I was reading it on my bed, and I slammed it, and I threw it across the room, because I was, like, afraid. I felt so seen by God in that moment, and I knew, I knew that I was a fake, even on that trip. And so there was this one time, this is, this is kind of my moment, and the team was going to lunch. It's about six weeks into the trip, almost at the end of the trip, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't go. And so I didn't. It's kind of weird. I went up to the roof of our dorm, and I read through where I was reading. I was reading at the end of the Gospel of John, and I had this like moment with God where I felt like God... I read about the crucifixion and the resurrection, and I knew that story. But it was like, all of a sudden, all of my life of lying and being self-centered and using people, it like collided with the grace of Jesus and how he died for my sin. I felt like Jesus was on that roof with his hand on my shoulder, and I felt like he said, Nate, I died for you because you're a liar, but I love you. It's like just grace and all my sin collided and changed my life. I came down from that roof, and I just like unloaded on my team. I, I grabbed my team leader and just told him everything. I told him how fake I was. And we stayed up to like 3 in the morning. I was just like sobbing. I mean, it was a huge moment for me, and I've never been the same. And in that moment, Jesus transferred me into the kingdom of Christ. And I was living in this domain of darkness, just trying to lie and fake it. But there was something that happened in that moment. The Spirit indwelt me. There was forgiveness of sins. There was redemption. My story uh, totally changed. And that's where I submitted my, my life to Jesus. I knelt my, 
my knee to him as Lord over all. He took the rightful place in my life, and it changed. It changed the trajectory of, of who I am today. And so that's what we're looking for this weekend. As we see Jesus for who he is, that we would bow our hearts to him and submit to him. And so I want to invite you into this personally. I want you to, to come with me as we look at this hymn. And I want you to bring your life and your story and where you're coming from and the baggage you have and how you've been mistreated or how you've been cynical about God or what other messages are in your life that are diminishing Christ and bring them to this hymn and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. A lot of what we're going to talk about is pretty like theological, um, philosophical things, but it's very, very personal, and it changes lives. So that's what I want to invite you into this weekend. Let's pray, and we'll be done for tonight. So, God, thank you so much for that story. Um, thank you for that moment where you brought me from death to life. Thank you, God, for calling me to yourself and for the grace of the cross. Lord, I pray for just every person in this room, and I pray, God, that you would be speaking to them, that you would make this, um, these truths about Christ being preeminent over all, unequivocally supreme, the authority that all of creation submits to, that those ideas would go from just theoretical and they'd go to really personal. And I pray, God, that you would do a work this weekend. We invite you, Lord. We want you to work and to speak. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.